we have uh, a couple of Bigelows with roving microphones, who if you have some questions for Greg, uh, we'll be able to give you a microphone so we can hear you. And uh, I have some questions, as you knew I would, uh, for him in any case. Did you like it? Greg, uh, we love your work, and um, you heard Stephen say that uh, actually, uh, and for our, our friends, uh, you know, at Bigelow, we uh, have for many years had sort of a theme, which is uh, what we call strategic emphasis. What's our strategic emphasis for the year? And we pick one theme for the year, and in 2021, we picked uh, essentialism. And we, Greg, have a room of incredibly high-performing professionals here. And uh, each of you, by the way, in your bag, if you don't already seen it, you have a, uh, this book, Essentialism. Uh, and I would say at Bigelow generally, and at this kind of together um, event, you know, we don't really focus on how to win the match. So if we were focusing on winning the match, we might be talking about, I don't know, the audience can chime in here, you know, the state of the art and indemnity or an F reorganization or how do you use a slat for your, uh, your private equity rollover? But we're not talking about how to win the match. We're talking about the game. Yeah. The infinite game. Yeah. And so one of the things that attracted me to some of your work is the nuanced point you make that uh, success traps mm. are often harder to overcome than failure traps. I want to just explore that with you. Tell me what you meant by that. Well, the thing that... Um, the thing that's so bad about a success trap is that you're incentivized not to change. <laughs> you know, it's the Kodak problem that we already discussed in partial, you know, earlier. Success, in, in failure traps, you're at least incentivized to do something different. That's not working. Well, at least let's try something else. Even sometimes then we don't change, but you're more incentivized to success traps you just keep on doing what you're doing. You keep being paid to do it, but actually you could be completely off track. You know, success, well, I didn't say it. Bill Gates said it. He said success is a very poor teacher. Yeah. And one of the things it teaches you is that you, you can't be wrong, uh, that you're not wrong. Whereas in sometimes, I mean, it's an interesting example to me. It's a business example, but I remember when the CEO of Netflix uh, one of the, the, the co-founders. Um, you remember? You remember this whole thing? It was very got very bad press when he when he suddenly kind of unilaterally announced, "Well, we're not going to do the you know we're going to divide the companies." You remember this? We're going to divide the companies, and we're going to have maybe no one paid attention to this. I I did because I thought it was so so interesting the feedback and everything. He said, "We're going to divide the companies. We're going to have one company that does DVD sending out you know that normal service, and one is going to be the streaming service, and you pay separately." And everyone was so taken aback by that inside the company. That was the error of his ways, that that they all like you know everyone freaked out and they said, "Well, we'll do that later." But what he did, I I thought in the moment he did it. I, I wish I could have like just called him up. I, I have met him and, and so on, but I don't know him personally. And I wanted to say, this, this is so great. And I don't care what everybody else is saying about it right now, because what he did was he was creating the future. And, and even the failure of the way that was announced, I think, was key to getting this, this, everyone psychologically inside the company to be willing to shift. 
And it was after there that now, of course, we don't think of Netflix as DVDs, and we don't never think of that at all. That's not who they are. 350 million people worldwide. I mean, they're, they're, bigger, than, they're bigger than everybody else combined now. Uh, and, and they're just sucking up Hollywood, all left, right, and center. So, so, so the idea is that you have to be a certain kind of bold to escape a success trap. So, so Greg's book that we talk about uh, is Essentialism. And his uh, new book is called Effortless. And one of the things I was thinking, Greg, about the concept of effortless, and you just touched on it, uh, if we think about our common clients, these entrepreneur owner managers, they're the weird kids in a room, right? They would be the weird kids in this room if they were here. And they've often been the ones who've been feeling isolated or alone or lonely. Uh, they aren't usually the most popular ones. Uh, just to use some slang, they're uh, sometimes uh, thought of being out there on the spectrum. This has been widely talked about and written about by people like Peter Thiel. Uh, Elaine Aaron, the psychologist, would say they're, most of them are highly sensitive persons. <laughs> the, like the caricature of them in our society would be like, think about Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Thiel. Uh, you, you can name the ones you want, but go back to Gates and Jobs, right? So those people uh, evidenced a life of struggle against the mass popular culture. And yet, you bring up the concept of effortless. Help me understand that. Well, I mean, first of all, I love how, I just love how uh, it flies in the face of almost everything we think about when we think of breaking through to the next level of success. That's one of the reasons I like it, is that it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Um, and challenges us to think about how we might be thinking. And, and we, can set, we can set that pretty easily, right? Okay, okay, we'll do it this way, right? By a show of hands, who here wants much better results, even 10x level results? Show of hands, let's see. Let's go, okay. I mean, it'd be weird if you didn't put your hand up to that question, right? Okay, now here's the next question. Who here, by a show of hands, can work 10x harder than you're currently working? Okay. I see no hands. It's a little dark out there, so I'm not absolutely sure. But I'm pretty sure we got 100% for the first and zero for the second. And that's the point, is that if you think there's only one way to get results, which is to work harder, and you are not getting the results you want to get, which ultimately none of us are, you know, there's always more that we would like to achieve and a higher contribution to make, then you set yourself up for an inevitable crisis, even if it's chronic so you don't really fully know about it. And the crisis is that you're going to be burned out. And I think in some ways, like if I summarized everybody here today, and it's not like I'm not being, I'm not being uh, judgmental in by having looked at your faces or anything, but I would just say there's two kinds of people in the room today, right? There are people who are burned out, and then there are people who know they are burned out. <laughs> um, and it's better to be in the second category, of course, but, but only a little better. And, and that's the result of trying to solve all problems by working harder, even when you run out of space. And so what the, what the actually, when you, when you study the people in the same way as your research at Bigelow revealed, which I completely concur with, that, that, that these EOMs are actually not massive risk takers, but a risk averse. In a similar way, when you look at the people who are the best at the best, especially over time, over considerable time, 
they're not just working harder and harder. In fact, it doesn't make any sense at all that that's the answer. You know, can Oprah really work a thousand times harder than the next person who was being a talk show host? No, it's just unthinkable. It's ridiculous. And yet she did have a thousand times more success doing it. So you've got to presume there's some other answer. And, and what happens for a lot of insecure overachievers who have been rewarded for just harder and harder work is that they not only value hard work, you know, like a Puritan ethic, New England ethic, right? We've got to work harder, that's great, and it's a value. Also, as part of a Puritan ethic, you start to distrust the easy. And that's where the, that is a huge type error, right? Type one error is not working hard enough. Type two error is, is distrusting the easy because then all those options, strategies, all that that's on the table that could make, your life, make it easier to achieve 10x results are off the table. And so we therefore routinely overexert, overthink, overcomplicate. And it's all part of this same problem. It's like there aren't two, one path to success, there are two. The second path is the path less traveled, but it's a, it's a tremendous advantage once you suddenly say, well, let's think differently about it. Steve Jobs did this all the time. I can point, to, I can point literally to 10 examples in a row of how he was thinking, not how do you work harder to get the result, but how do we make it simpler, easier, remove the friction for the customer, make this thing so that it, it becomes intuitive. You don't have to read anything about it. Anyway, that's a long enough answer to your question, probably. I think I'll leave it, leave it there. So let me get um, personal with you for a moment. So we know you as uh, an author, a thought leader, um, a father, um, a spiritual man. Mm. Um, what are a couple of uh, descriptive words you would use to describe what you do now? Hmm. Um, just buying myself a little time, that reminds me of something that, <laughs> um, a conversation I had just literally a couple of days. You'll see I'm not really avoiding your question. Just giving myself a moment to think through it. This is... Um, it's good because I have more questions. This is Chip Conley, who... Uh, you know Chip Conley? Does anybody know this person? Chip Conley uh, was, a, among other things, an advisor to the founders at, at, uh, uh, at Airbnb. And when he got there, they had 33 different initiatives and priorities, you know, and he said, look, well, you can't have that many. You've got to have a few. And so he did an exercise where, and that's reminding me of it, he put everybody two by two from the executive team in different rooms, and their job was to answer the question, what business are we in, in two words? What business are we in? And after you answered it, it didn't matter what you answered, you had to answer it a second time, not using the words you used before. And then a third time without using any of the words. You had to do it five times, not repeating any words. Every person did it, and then they all came back together, and they shared the one answer they gave that they thought was best answering what business are we in. And the reason I'm responding in that way is because as soon as he shared that with me, and I haven't done it yet, I'm like, I'm going to do that. And so if I had done that already, I would have a, a better answer for you, because I really want to name, answer the question you're asking it, it, for, my, you know, for myself in a deeper way. So, so now, I wish I'd done it. Um, we, can, uh, we can give you some pencil and paper and wait a few minutes. We can yeah. go have a cocktail. Come <laughs> yeah. back. Um, I mean, what, 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 I think I, what I think I'm in the business of doing, I, I think I'll answer it this way for now. I think, I think about the work I'm doing as being about light. 
I was interviewed by Tim Ferriss a couple of times on his podcast, and the first time he said, okay, what one word would you put on a, you know, on a uh, billboard. billboard? And, uh, and I said, light. And I meant it in terms of like light versus darkness, right? Like whatever you do in every moment, you can choose to go towards light or towards darkness. Every one of us can do that, and we don't need other people to tell us what it is. We know, we can know what it is. And, and the second time I was on there, he asked me the same question, and I was sitting there like I am awkwardly with you going, oh, I don't know. And, and I finally was like, you know what? I think my answer would be, again, light, but in a different way. Same word, different meaning. Light versus, lighter versus heavier. And so I think that that's as good an answer as I can come up with in this moment, that I'm trying not, not to bring light exactly. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's more, it's a deeper conviction than that, which is that there's light in people already. And, and that people know the answers. It, it's in there. The data's available. The light is there. But it gets so pounded and clouded by everything else, by all the voices and all the noise and all of the, the email and the inbox and all the data and all the news and all the negativity and all of that just becomes this, this noise getting us away from that clarity inside. That, that's, that's what it is. I would love to help people, my children first, but then everybody else, you know, that I can do it to be able to feel, recognize, and follow that light. Yeah. I love that answer. That's what it is. Is that what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? <laughs> I had it all written down. It's like the blockbuster executives. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, no, what, I gotta think about, uh, okay. what characteristic would you most uh, try to repress in an interview? Oh, well, that was, that was a completely different question. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so, so. We're having so much fun. What emotion this. would I most like to resist? In repress an, in, was repress. my um, Well, I think the answer to that question, well, the first answer I thought when you asked it was anger. But I think I, I have some anger in me, not as much as I used to. And I don't mean anger is like, you know, I'm not screaming at anybody, I'm not fighting anybody, but just a sort of anger at how things can sometimes be for people, how desperate it can be, how much suffering there is. Maybe there's a bit of that. But I actually surprised at my answer that came to me after a moment, which is love. And you shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be repressing that, but I think I probably am. And I'll, I'll blame, Stephen, I'll blame it on the whole of the British Empire for a thousand years, you know. We'll blame, blame, it, blame it on them. Blame it on the Queen, that seems all right. And, 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 and I only say that half-jokingly because I think that there is something about, you know, I mean, love is vulnerability. You know, love is understanding. Uh, but I think I feel much more of that than for whatever reason I have felt comfortable just sharing with people. And, and I, don't, I mean to change that, you know, and, and I, um, you know, it's a work in progress, but I guess that's my answer. I think you're changing it today. Yeah. Thank you. Can you say more about, you, you said every, there's two kinds of people, those who are burned out here and those who know they are, but maybe you could say more about protecting the asset. Um, a friend of mine was an Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, he was the f he was on a built a business and a few others. I think he was the CEO at the time. 
uh, built a company. Actually, you maybe know the company. I don't know. It's called Unitas. And it was the first for-profit microloan business in the world, which is very radical at the time, especially because the only people into microloans were people that maybe, to be perfectly honest, were probably left-leaning. And so the idea of a for-profit solution within that was really counter the culture of the people. So people at first were like booing them off stage kind of thing. And anyway, he, he, he stuck with it through all that, and they created this multi-billion dollar you know, fund in, in, in for-profit microloans so that they could scale it. That was the, 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 the genius of it. We want to scale the solution to masses of people so for-profit will enable us to do that. Well, anyway, so he's traveling all over the world. He's traveling maybe three different continents a week. I mean, he's just absolutely on the top of his game. And he's not paying attention to the data inside. You know, there's an old um, you know, scriptural idea that, that uh, our bodies are a temple, right? And, and if, you, if you go beyond that as metaphor, if you say, oh, well, actually, our body really is a temple, a place of learning, a place of schooling, of education, of enlightenment, well, maybe you should listen to your body differently, and it's kind of news to me to think about it that way. So if you're tired and you're not listening to it, it's like, yeah, you're not listening to the, 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 the temple of your life. Well, he wasn't, and he wasn't because he was just so busy doing all these things. And finally, he, was, he got very, very sick. Um, he was sleeping one night, and, and he woke up like a gun had gone off in the room, and he thought, he, he, he thought a real gun had gone off, but his wife is still asleep, and his children are still asleep, and he's like, well, I guess it was just a dream, and then it happened again, and then it happened again in the middle of the day, and finally goes to the doctor, he says, oh, you know, I've got this problem, and the doctor, like, does all these tests, and he says, look, you know, what you need to do is go home and rest, seriously rest, and he's like, do it for six weeks, and he's the total over, insecure overachiever, he says, watch this, I'll do it in two weeks. You know. and, and he goes home and he tries to do it for two weeks and he finds himself able to sleep 16 hours a day which itself surprised him and at the end of that he sort of crawls his way back to the doctor and he's like okay I get it like I really am exhausted in ways I didn't realize I wasn't listening I wasn't noticing and so the, the consequence of that was that he ended up having to be in recuperation for two or three years and, um, and gave up he had to quit the company that he helped build, and he was just devastated by that, and he, he summarized all of this in a very private setting, you know, not dissimilar to this really, but among his peers, and he just said, what I learned is that you have to protect the asset, and that's his phrase, he's his genius, and, and his summary from that painful lesson, the asset is you, it's me, it's you, it's, it's, it's you, you're the asset, you're the primary asset, right, we, we value assets in all the financial ways that we can use that term, but you are the asset. And if you're burning out the asset, if you're not protecting the asset, if you're burning it out, then eventually you, you're gonna, you will be burned out and you'll pay a far higher cost, as he did, than if you, maybe it won't come out in the same way for him, but maybe it affects your marriage, maybe it affects your family, maybe it affects your clients, maybe it affects your ability to see the future, vision, your life, all of this, meaning, all of those things can be sacrificed. So there's a rule. I'll give you one rule. I didn't have it when I read Essentialism, but I had it by the time I wrote Effortless, and it's this rule. is do not do more today than you can recuperate fully from by tomorrow. That's like, it's like so good and so painful all at the same time, isn't it? Like that, that's just like you almost wish I hadn't shared that with you. It's like, darn it. Now I have to live with that rule nagging me forever. And, and I understand that, but it's still, it still will keep you honest. You can, you're going to violate that today, you know, maybe. But it, you, if you violate it over time, you know, it won't leave you alone. That, that, you will break yourself against that rule. 
Um, so that's a specific thing people can do right now to protect the asset. Are there questions? I can't see very well. Can you talk about time frames a little bit? Uh, I find the idea of uh, thinking about what's essential for my life daunting. I think I heard you say decide what's essential for the year. Can you move that back to smaller chunks? <laughs> Let's keep the microphone for a second. So, so, so you're just saying that you are, you're just saying you're overwhelmed by the idea of what's essential in my life. It's just too big of a question. Sort yes. of, yes. Why is it too big for you? I'm just confronting the concept right now. I have to process it. <laughs> there are some, keep the mic. There are some, there are some ideas or experiences in life that, that even though they happen qu quickly, can disorient us for a year. You know, if somebody goes through something traumatic, it could disorient them for 10 years. In a way, that's what you're saying. I mean, you're not saying it's traumatic, but you're saying, I don't know how to, this is like, this is like hitting me. You know, I'm going to have to process this for a while. I, I almost just don't want to get, I just don't want to take you off the hook in a way. I don't want, I answer it for your life. Like, why not? You know, like, set some time aside between now and the end of the year to have, like, let's call it a personal quarterly offsite in which you really answer the question, you know, what what is the most essential thing to me to achieve between now and the end of my life? Like, really, what do I want to do? If I only do one thing between now and the end, what is it? And then, of course, you can go on to number two, and you will, and you'll need to, but to really answer that question. Because what I've found in life, generally, is that people make trade-offs, not because they mean to, but they make them by default. They say no to the essential, because they're saying yes to something non-essential, and by default, because there's only enough time left for you or me or any of us to complete the essential work of our life. Like, there's no extra time to do all the trivial stuff. It, 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 it's like if every time we say yes to something non-essential, we're saying no to something that is essential. So that's what I want to say to you. I want to, like, just do it. And, and do it, and, and I'm kind of answering your question more specifically by saying quarterly offsite, right? Schedule time, quarterly offsite. There's plenty of companies out there, and I'm not one of them, but, but that offer these kinds of, you know, planning times. So if you want to do it in a community, you could do it that way, uh, where you just stay, start saying, okay, what is it long term? What are the few goals I want to achieve, you know, left in my life? Limit yourself, let's say, to five. These are the things I really actually want to do. Because you don't know, right? And this is awful. But not one of us knows how long we have left. And, and, and what I would say as a general rule of thumb is you have a lot less than you think. And that's not because we're going to die younger than we think, although, of course, that happens all the time you know, to people. They thought they had 30 years left, and they have five. My best friend is my age, and he just, he just got cancer a second time. And we don't know when he'll die, but we know how he'll die. And uh, you know, that's like the worst day of my whole life. Because um, like, it wasn't supposed to be that I was going to, well, I mean, I don't you know, maybe I won't grow old, but, but I, it was not ever in my head supposed to live one day without him being alive, right? Like that wasn't supposed to happen. I certainly wasn't supposed to grow old while he's, he dies young. He has old children, everything. And, and, and uh, he recently asked me, um, he said, so, you know, like if I do die, you know, really soon, uh, he said, will you... Um, 
you know, will you be willing to <laughs> check in on my children, see if they need anything, you know? And I'm like, Sam, the day you told me that, that you had cancer again, the first thought that came to me was that your children are now mine. Um, I thought it was weird to say that at the time, but that's how it is now. And um, we don't have time like we think. We're guilty of the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is a brain heuristic that says that things will take, we think things will take less time than they really will. And that writ large is that we have less time left than we think we have. So do the personal quarterly offsite. Identify what the top five things are you really want to do before the end and design your daily, weekly routines around those things or they will not happen and you'll regret that at the end. And you don't have to. You can regret everything, but you're not going to regret the day you chose to become an essentialist. You know? No there's doubt. My, there's my answer. So if we think is of life, you brought this up. Yeah. If we think of life as a school filled with teachers and lots of information, uh, then what is life asking you to learn right now? Me? Yeah. Uh, it seems to be asking me to prepare fast to contribute more. So I've, I am in the midst, I mentioned this, this word to you anyway, that I feel in the midst of like a personal renaissance right now. And I spent six months doing a sort of scriptural challenge that I thought would be sort of good and renewing, but, but ended up being completely revelatory and transformational to me. And it, it hasn't changed. I just did it six months, but that was six months ago I finished it. And still it just reverberates. I, you know, I'd feel all sorts of insights. Call this person, reach out to that person, including Sam, who I just mentioned. Like, like in the midst of nothing, just, you just really need to reach out to him right now. And I, we would stay in touch all the time, but I did. And it, this was, he was going through a ter terrible time. And this was before he was having his, his uh, diagnosis. And so there were all sorts of things that made me feel, yeah, this is the right path. And, and it's not stopped yet. And so there are these big transformations. So it's not like, it's not like I'm sort of at a certain point going, oh, yes, it's good, you know. Uh, yeah, I've written a couple of books that did better than I possibly ever would have imagined. Um, you know, it's, well, we're done. Let's just live on that. You know, you could, you could get into that. I feel exactly the opposite. I feel like we're just beginning, and I am not ready. <laughs> it's like, ready or not, here I come. It's like, it's coming, but I have got to get less bad. Not as a human, although that's probably true too. I mean, like, I need to learn fast now. I've just begun a few months ago as a result of this reading like a great books program. I've mentioned this to you, you know, going back, reading the Iliad and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, Odyssey and, and, and Crime and Punishment and, and all these books I mentioned already to you so you know. But, um, but, but like, I, and that's just the beginning of it. There's so much more beyond that, right? So I'm going to go and do some more graduate work right now. Uh, hopefully, if they let me in in Cambridge. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, and, and onwards. So there's much, much more to do, which means I have to be more prepared and more selective and more thoughtful and not just do everything that other people maybe in the kind of field I'm in would do. Hey, Pete, we have a question over here. Uh, thanks. Um, 
this is fun. Your illustrations around listening made me think about the definition of humility, which is, I think, um, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less about yourself. Yeah, that's and good. And it feels as if in all of this, uh, there's a role for humility. Um, and I used to have a prayer, which was, God, give me humility, but don't humble me. Um, so yeah, it's, I really it's a little tricky. You anyway, gotta be careful. So you be careful how you pray that. I love that. You're like, please, humility, not in those ways, if you don't mind. Yeah, I like that. Right. So, I like just that. I guess my question is, so how do you just speak to the role of humility in actually doing this stuff? Doing this stuff. The, well, listening was one thing because when I'm trying to listen, I, my biggest problem is that I really want to hear what I have to say, um, and you you spoke to that a little bit, but. Um, even putting, it sounds as if um, this, uh, to do what you're talking about and what the book is about, I need to put other things aside, I need to put other people before me in some cases, I need to change my priorities, narrow them, <laughs> reduce them, um, and some of that I think may have to do with thinking less about myself. But so I'm just wondering if you have anything to say about that. Who did you hear that quote from? Is that from the, the, the Dieter um, Ugdorf quote? I, I, it might be Tim Keller. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. I heard it from a, from a, um, a leader called uh, Dieter Ugdorf from um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was a very powerful speech he gave on that subject. But your question, your question is, what is the role? Do it. I'm trying to work out whether there's a question there and what it is. You, you're asking me just to riff on the, the role of humility or the role of having to get out of my own desires and into the head of other people. Is that really what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. Yes. There are two versions of essentialism, right? There is one version, and to some extent is the version that I present in the book, not really deliberately, or at least it's be easy to interpret it this way, that it's like, yeah, figure out what's essential to you and do it. And that's appealing to a lot of people, apparently, and, 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 that, and that's still, I still stand by that, but it's like version 2.0 of essentialism is work out what's essential to you and what's essential to other people so that you can even work out what's essential to you, right? Like it's an, inter, it's an interdependent question. It's, it's, I was just talking to Simon Sinek, and um, one of the things we riffed about together was, was like, can you even work out what your why is without talking with other people? And he was very firm. He's a very, he's a very interesting person, and in his ways, his thinking is really interesting. He's quite contrarian in his style of communication, interpersonally, and, and, and so, but he just, on this point, he's like, yes. He's like, oh no, excuse me. He's like, he's like, no. <laughs> he said, no, you can't. You can't even begin to figure out what your why is without talking with other people. It's a, it's totally. You need a, you need a coach to help you. You need the people in your life to help you. you, the, you the, it sounds like an independent question, but because we all live interdependent lives, even the independent questions are actually interdependent. Does that make sense? But of course, it, 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 it makes sense to me anyway. I know it's a little, little, little circular, but it, it, but it's true. It's like it's like we live 
No one here, even in the pandemic, right, where we're as lonely and isolated as we've ever been in our lifetimes, or at least potentially so, uh, we still are interacting and must interact, and we need to interact with other people. There's no, there's, so I actually find myself now just going like, yeah, essentialism is done collectively or not at all. It's going to be with other people, and to some extent, the book I'm working on now is, is, is I think, got to solve for this. Uh, because because it's, it, it's like, yeah, it's fine to want to do it individually, but you've got to figure out how to do it in relationships. And to shift from an independent mindset to an interdependent mindset, to shift from a, my way of seeing the world to other mindsets, to live inside of their world for a while, oh, yeah, that's the big shift. Some people have never, uh, some people have never done it in their whole lives. And I'm, I'm not saying anybody here has never done it in their whole lives, but some people only understand other people around them basically through their own lens. You know, th th then they're intelligent and they're thoughtful so they can cope with living life that way, but as a result, you never experience what it is in their world. And it just produces so much ineffectiveness and inefficiency because, I mean, who here hasn't given a gift that the person receiving it just didn't seem to want that gift, you know? <laughs> And who here hasn't been given a gift and you didn't want that gift? It's the worst. It, what, you said it's the you worst. You feel so misunderstood. You feel so misunderstood. So that's interesting, right? Like it's almost worse than not giving the gift. It's almost worse. Actually, it is worse than not getting the gift. You've not been seen and they tried to see you and they clearly didn't and couldn't. So you feel lonelier than if they hadn't even bothered. And that's where so many people are living is in this very independent world where we're guessing about everyone around us. What if you could understand them precisely, exactly, and then you can, you can do something for them that is so personalized? We have to learn to first observe, then serve, and the observe part is the part we haven't been trained well to do. So, I wanna thank you for being a terrific example of essentialism to us, Greg. Hmm. And the other thing that comes through to me from you is your essential kindness. So we really appreciate you being with us here tonight. And will you join me in thanking Greg? Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.